if one grows up in the church, there's a phrase that's often used, but oftentimes people don't study it much. And the phrase is this, is what's God's will? And maybe to phrase it different, what is God's will for your life? Now, if you spend time in ministry with young people, and Deanna and I have worked in college ministry over the years and career ministry, and it's a phrase that's very relevant to them as they look to the future. I think of young people who graduate from high school, and that question is asked, what's God's will for my life? Should I go to ICC? Should I just find a job and work somewhere in the workplace? Should I go to Duluth? Should I head out to Harvard or somewhere else? What is God's will in terms of schooling? But think of this even, then we experienced this in the issue of marriage when, when those young people were dating and, and the question was asked, God, who should I marry? Is there just one person out there for me to marry? Now, there's a question that I don't think people have wrestled with a lot. And let me throw it out there. This happened a lot in the college ministry. Does God have a specific will for every situation. Now, over the years, what I've discovered, when you start layering that on top of people and questions, and, and we find that the bigger the decision, the more likely that people will begin to ask God, what is your will? But in smaller ones, smaller decisions, maybe not quite so much. Okay, you go out for lunch afterward, maybe, and you go to a restaurant. And how many of you stop and pray before you look at the menu and say, God, what do you want me to have today? A hamburger or a fish sandwich or salad? How many of you will do that? See, the question, to what degree is God's will, how does it fit into your everyday life? Have you ever thought about the theology, the the understanding, the biblical idea of God's will and its many nuances? I find that a lot of people really haven't thought about it. Um, A number of years ago when I was down in Baxter at the church there, a young woman, I was working with the college and young career, and she came in and or she called me up and she wanted to come in and she had kind of fallen for a young man and, and she just wasn't sure though about the situation and she had some doubts and so I invited her to come in and talk and now understand this that the, the her boyfriend was kind of insecure and he was a little worried what she was gonna we were gonna be talking about. So he invited himself to come along and and, and the conversation started and And again, it was centered around the idea of moving toward deeper into the relationship, toward marriage potentially. And and so I said something like this to begin with. Sally, I changed the name here. Let me ask you a couple questions. I know that you're wanting to follow Christ in this. That was pretty evident from her just wanting to come in. But is it not true that you're really wanting Christ to be in a potential marriage? And she said, yes. They said, let me ask you a two-part question. Do you believe, and I'll call him Joe, do you believe that Joe here, who's sitting next to you, will he be a man that will look to present you complete in Christ? And the second part to that, is he doing it now? 
See, the question is, that will this guy be looking to, to develop your faith, to push you toward Jesus, to draw you toward Jesus, or will he be one that will be pulling you away from Christ? I'll never forget it. I, I can picture it to this day and how my desk was arranged in the room and, and, and she looked over at him and, and she said, no and no. She didn't believe that he was really interested in helping her develop her faith, and he wasn't doing it currently then. Uh, by the end of the week, she had recontacted me, and she informed me that she was breaking up with this man. She had broke up with this guy. Now, fast forward about a year and a half here. She ends up calling me back up, and she was at a very different place, and she had fallen in love with a guy, and, and a different guy, and she was now engaged, and he said, Ken, would you be willing to officiate my wedding? And as I did the premarital, it was very clear that they were on the same page in terms of spiritually and looking to grow and make Christ a part of their home. But you understand what happened in that room is she discovered God's will for her life. And the answer was No. She couldn't go down that path. But see, sometimes the will of God has to do with our desires. We, we look at every situation and sometimes we go, how do we discover that? Well, St. Augustine or Augustine, depending on which way you pronounce that, was a theologian in the 4th century, maybe the most influential theologian of our day in the last 2,000 years. And he penned these words concerning the will of God. He said this, Love God and do as you please. Love God and do what you want. And you look at that and you go, okay, that throws some confusion into it. But understand what he meant here. He meant this, is when a person is committed to loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind, that it will make a difference in what they do and as to how they interact with God in his will. But the challenge is, if one is not seeking Christ, if one's heart is not bent toward Christ, if there's no training in what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, God's will becomes really quite elusive. And oftentimes where people can drift to it is this. Basically, they're stuck on loving themselves and they're deciding what God's will is for themselves. And it's based on their selfishness. But if a heart is moving toward God, there's a growing desire for spiritual wisdom. There's a growing desire for wanting to please God. There's a growing desire for to be sensitive even to the Holy Spirit and listening to the Holy Spirit in trying to discern His voice and what the Holy Spirit wants. Because there are times that I believe, I believe this, there are times when the Spirit reveals to us some very specific things that we're called to do. And Deanna and I can point to a number of times, even as a couple and as a family, there are some things that if we didn't do it, we were going to be disobedient. But understand why I introduce it this way, the text today. Because this text this morning is about the will of God. And let me give you a key main thought from our author. 
if you're following along in the outline in the bulletin there, I, I said it this way, the key meaning here, one of these meanings that we just can't get away from, I said it this way, God's intended sovereign will was that his son would not be thwarted in the journey to the cross. Understand, before the world was created, God knew that we were going to, Adam and Eve were going to fall. They were going to decide their own selfishness. They were going to turn their backs on God. And God already at that point began to put a plan in place that at some point would send his son into the world and this was going to be his will, his sovereign will. And understand this, the certainty that is really so powerful that God would not allow man's independence to block his plan. See, this text today is the will of God. Last week, we looked at the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And remember him feeling the weight of the cup, needing to drink that cup of poison. But remember the three different times in that prayer as he was exchanging thoughts with his father, he said this, not my will, Father, but yours. He was submitting to his father's will. And he knew that there was a path before him that he had to walk down. Let's jump into the passage here. Look at Mark chapter 14, verse 42. So they're coming out of the garden. He said this, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came and one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So they're coming out of this olive grove, and immediately the crowd is approaching them, and it included, again, you'll notice, chief priests, and there was Pharisees, lots of religious people there, and they estimate, frankly, that that crowd could have been somewhere around 200 people, and coming with clubs and swords. And John records, actually, that it was very dark, and, and at the lanterns and torches, they actually used lanterns and torches to come in a way. So they would have seen this big group of people with these lights coming to, meet, to, uh, to, catch, to get them, obviously to arrest him. But you understand this, this was the planned will of God. Look at verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. So Jesus knew what God's will was. Now, when you read the four Gospels, and that's one of the things I did here, is digging into all four accounts, you realize that Jesus, watching this crowd come, he didn't shrink back. Matter of fact, John 18 tells us that he, he went actually to meet them. And I want to put John 18 on the screen here, just to show you this, what's going on. Then Jesus... Verse 4, knowing that all that would happen to him came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Now understand this people, there was people in that crowd including soldiers, Roman soldiers, it points out other passages. And so they were there to get him, but he asked this question, Who do you seek? And understand there had been people there that wouldn't have known Jesus by his face. So that, that's where Judas had to give this sign of this kiss. Look at verse 18, verse 4. Then Jesus, um, knowing 
Oh, I already said that. Understand that. Let's go to the next one there. Jesus said to them, look at this one. I am he, and Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, now notice Mark doesn't record this next phrase. They drew back and fell to the ground. Now, did this crowd just stumble backwards and fall over? You go, what's going on here? Now, here's one thing that i got to point out. Because in our versions of our Bible and the English, it, it translates this, I am he. But the original language just doesn't translate it that way. In this pa- passage in John, here, here's what Jesus said. He, just said. he said this, I am. He didn't put... I'm not the one. He just said, I am. And if, you're, if you've grown up in the church, or maybe you've understood, you know what that, that means. It's that Jesus is saying, I am the Son of God. I am the Divine One. Remember when God would talk to the prophets. Moses, remember, he told Moses, I am the one from the beginning to the end. See, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. I am. And you understand the reaction to him saying that. And I don't know what exactly. It doesn't say really what was going on. But maybe it was the Holy Spirit going, blowing out a whisper, and everybody falls down. See, that's really what could have been happening. They were startled by what was going on here. Well, let me keep going. Look at verse 7. So he asked them again. Another time. Now, I think here's what's going on. They're struggling to get on their feet. And he throws out a second time, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Jesus knew it. He's playing with him here a little bit. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have, not, I have lost not one. God's will was being worked out in every prophetic sense. Let me, keep going. Let me go back to verse 45, though, in Mark. Let's keep going here in the text. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi... And he kissed him, and we know that's Judas here. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, there are a couple of actions here that are emphasized in this paragraph. And first is the kiss of Judas. Judas obviously had told this group this was going to be the signal. This is the one you're going to arrest, the one that I'm going to kiss. But here's where our English really doesn't get it quite right, in that the sense where this word emphasizes a deeply affectionate kiss. You could either say it was a long kiss, or it was repeated kisses one right after another. So here you understand what's happening. Here is a profoundly loving action with a cold, calculated heart of Judas. 
using an affectionate symbol to betray Jesus and God's will was being done. By using this man's betrayal, he was accomplishing his will. Remember again in the garden, Father, not my will, but your will. But there's a second action as well well here. It's Peter's blundering defense. In the Gospels, again, Mark doesn't reveal it's Peter, but it's Peter here from the other Gospels. And remember a while back, Peter had kind of gotten upset with Jesus, and he made this statement, Jesus, I'm never going to let you die. No, that's not going to happen. But Peter was resolved to protect Jesus. So he grabs that sword, and the servant of the high priest is close by, and Peter begins slashing away, and all of a sudden, we don't know if Peter had very good aim or what, or if the guy ducked, but all of a sudden, there's this guy with blood running down his his, his side of his face. Ear is missing. Peter, what have you just done? Uh, In many ways, it's an example of a reactionary of the flesh kicking in. But let me connect the dots here again. That act of violence should have set that mob in motion. They should have rushed in with those 200 people against 12, and there should have been a bloodbath that should have began. And I believe this. Those words, I am, and that falling back of that group slowed them down. Slowed them down enough where they were hesitant to just rush in on Jesus. And then the ones that would have been close would have watched Jesus, and whether the ear was dangling there or he picked it up off the ground. But it tells us, other Gospels tell us that Jesus just touches his ear. He put it back on and it's healed immediately. So here was a man that was screaming, blood was flowing down his face, and all of a sudden, the pain is gone, and he's quiet. I think even that miracle played a part in the mob not rushing in and grabbing him and beginning to kill the other disciples. That restoration slowed it down, and it was the will of God. So Peter, the reactionary one, the other text tells us that uh, Jesus said, Peter, put your sword away. You're going to hurt yourself. Look at though how he addresses. Look at verse 48. Let's keep going. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, and he left the linen cloth, and he ran away naked. See, we have this kiss, the betrayal. But the next steps of God's will was being accomplished. And we also see this, is all of a sudden, he's arrested, and the disciples flee. They forsake him. But I don't know if you've ever pondered 
what was going through the minds and the emotions of those disciples as this was taking place. They had just spent three and a half years with this man who claimed to be the Messiah, and their hopes were shattered. And I just can't help but wonder that they go, was he a false Messiah? Was it real? Because understand, as Jesus refused to defend himself, they would have said, why? Jesus, why aren't you defending yourself against these people, this mob? And Jesus, we know your power. You could have done it. But God's will, you understand, was being done. I don't know if you remember this, but in Luke's account, after the resurrection, there was two disciples that were walking on the road to Emmaus, and a stranger appeared to them, began conversing with them, and about the events in Jerusalem. And let me just put a snippet of what they, one of them said to this stranger here. Look at Luke 24, 21a. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. See, the disciples didn't catch it. I'm not sure we would have either. But Jesus was not talking about an earthly kingdom. He was talking about a spiritual kingdom. They just couldn't grasp this idea of a spiritual kingdom. They just didn't get it, and they scattered. Now, we're going to come back to Peter next week again. But let me comment briefly on that last verse there about this young man who had in linen cloth and all of a sudden he runs away naked. You go, what's this about? None of the other Gospels actually put this in. And here's what I've discovered, what almost everybody believes, the scholars that are behind it as they dig. They really think it's this. This was John Mark, the author himself. And it was Mark's way of saying, I was there at this event. I was there. But see, the will of God was taking place in front of the disciples, in front of this crowd. But look how it moves forward. Forward. Look at verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. And Peter followed them at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. Then he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified against, falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. You just think of the lengths of what they were going through, the hatred that was in their hearts to bring people in and give false testimony, and all of a sudden the testimony doesn't agree. See, they're in a little bit of trouble here. And yet God's will was unfolding. Look at verse 57. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. A phony trial. Let's keep going. Look at 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? 
But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. He refused to say anything. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you, he changes the question here, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Finally, he hits a question that Jesus will respond to. And look in verse 62. I am, said Jesus. What did he just say? I am the Son of God. And Jesus went on, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and the coming on the clouds of heaven. The I am is what drove this high priest to go crazy at this point, and he ripped his robes. We'll see that in the next text here. But he was claiming, Jesus was claiming to be the true Son of God. Now understand the high priest was from the religious line of Aaron, all the way back to Aaron. And the office of the high priest, understand this, he had a special duty. He was the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies. And you know what the great, one of the great ironies of this is, I discovered? Numbers 27, there's a verse, I'm not going to go to it. But the Hebrew people would often go to the high priest to discover the will of God. Here the will of God was unfolding in front of this man. And he didn't know that he was a part of the plan of the will of God. But look at how he responds. The high priest tore his clothes and it would have been a symbol there of blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. And they blindfolded him and struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. The brutality begins here. Jesus is beginning to drink of that cup. He is still, but he is still doing his Father's will. Now, as I thought of this idea of the will and the brutality that's beginning to take place, uh, my mind went immediately to 8, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things that God works for the good of those who love him See, do we see in this text that the sovereignty of God was on full display and his will could not be thwarted? Jesus was not going to be stopped going to the cross. He was working all things. He took what Jesus was doing and he took man's sin and he put them together as his sovereign will. Now, he asked a question on this text, is there anything that applies to us? And I, I really believe there is. Because as we watch Jesus on this journey, the recognition that he is called, he is our model. He is the one that we're to follow. He is the one that we're to be like. We're supposed to be taking on his character more and more. So let me just give you a couple application points and really, I'm going to do it is just the contrast between Judas and Jesus here. If you follow along in the outline, the first one I said this for Jesus 
We see over and over again his love. He's one who is a friend of sinners and he loves people. You know, Peter did that really dumb thing. And yet, Jesus reaches out to this servant within the mob and he compassionately restores the guy's ear. He loved even though this guy was looking to arrest him. But let me show you another one that I think is even more startling. Look at Matthew 26, 49. Here's the same account, and he came up, Judas came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed them, kissed him. Look at verse 50, though. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. That term is an endearment term. It showed his love and his compassion even toward Judas. Here in the midst of a mob, Judas looking to betray him, and he still cared for for Judas, calling him a friend. And as I ponder that, is there anybody in this room that would say to somebody that betrayed us so deeply, and actually the betrayal to the point where it's sending you me to the death, would we call them friend at that moment? I know I wouldn't. There's some things I would call them, but it sure wouldn't be friend. Do you, do you catch the profound love that Jesus had even for Judas here that was betraying him? But you've got to notice the contrast of a Jesus and a Judas. And in your notes, I said it this way, Judas was one who loved money. Judas loved He just didn't love people. He loved money. Matthew tells us that Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. I don't know if you realize, that was the common price for a slave. And and if you you were to kind of look at it in terms of how much money that was, it was about a month's salary for a common man in that culture. It wasn't really an exorbitant amount of money. He traded, it just wasn't that much. But understand Judas and his heart. Look at John 12, verse 5. Now here, Judas is actually complaining about Mary wasting the perfume on Jesus. Look how he speaks. This is Judas speaking. Why wasn't this perfume sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? And then John adds some commentary. Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As Keeper of the money bag, he used to take from what was put into it. Now, what's going on here? See, the reality is that there can be people who claim to follow Jesus, just like Judas, but it's all show. Their lives really never, never demonstrate any kind of love. There's not a love for Jesus, then there's not a love for the kingdom of God. But it's the love for money. And scripture warns over and over again that money is a trap. The love of stuff, the love of pleasure. You understand money is going to take you in the opposite direction of Jesus. He loved money. He really didn't care about Jesus. 
But let me give you another aspect of his life here. Jesus demonstrated a life of courage. See, I believe this is that the Holy Spirit had to give Jesus courage to do his Father's will. Last week, we pointed out God sent an angel to minister to him even in that garden. But here Jesus stands falsely accused, taking beatings, begin to beat him, to take the weight of sin on his shoulders. And when you ask the question, how did Jesus get enough courage to continue walking toward the cross? Where he could have stopped and said, all of you are dead. And he didn't do it. Why did he have the courage? And I think this is the reason. He trusted his heavenly father. Folks, no fear. He walked toward the cross and he wasn't consumed like, with fear like we are at times. Remember that verse, perfect love casts out fear? He knew the perfect love from his father. It's why he could go to the cross, why he had courage to keep walking down this path. The reality is sometimes in our lives there's hard times that come and the only way that we can survive is to do what Jesus modeled for us. We trust that we have a good, good heavenly father. But think of the contrast here of, with Judas. For your notes, Judas lived a life as a coward and a traitor. The opposite of Jesus. Judas only trusted in himself. It was about him. Now, I want to show you a text. A lot of people misinterpret this one. But Matthew chapter 27, a little bit more of the story of Judas. Look how it goes in verse 3. Then when Judas' betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Now, people misread this passage. And they think that this is some type of repentance with Judas. And here's how I would say it. He had shame and he had guilt. But he had no repentance. If he truly would have been repentant, he wouldn't have been going to the priest. He would have been running to Jesus and he would have been throwing himself on the ground wherever Jesus was being held. And he would have said to Jesus, Jesus, I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? All what he was trying to do was alleviate his shame and guilt for taking the money. And catch this, going to hang himself was the act of a coward. He was a coward. He had no courage. A traitor to the one he followed for three and a half years. But let me go back to this issue of courage for us. Is it not true that Jesus calls us to have a type of courage as we walk through hard times in our lives. Courage comes from knowing and believing by faith 
that we have a heavenly Father that is looking out for our interests. He's for us. Courage says that we believe God and that God has the long view in mind. We keep looking at the short view, but understand this, God had a long view of mind when it comes to eternity, even in the cross, before creation even came. He had the long view in mind that he had to send his son, and the son had to obey his will and go to the cross. If he had the long mind for all of his creation, does he not have that long view for us as well? But we must trust that God is good And understand, as we learn and embrace that, it begins to drive away fear that can consume us. So let me end on a a practical suggestion here. When hard times come, when fear begins to creep in, the first thing we need to do is pray. And you understand, that's what Jesus did in last week's text in the garden. But here's where I think we need to model what Jesus did. In that prayer, three times he went to the Father and he said, Father, not my will, but your will. And here's a very practical suggestion. If you're in a moment, a season of deep discouragement, one of the things that I think we could do is pray, but here's how we need to start the prayer. Father, your will, not mine. And my hunch is that's going to change the very tone of why and what we pray for. That as the Spirit gives us power to believe that God is good, He's for us, I think that He can change us, He will change us, and all of a sudden we're more concerned about God's will than we are about our will. See, God's will is an issue even in those seasons where we're deeply discouraged and we're going through hard times of life. Let me just end with a couple of questions here this morning. Do you know God's will for your life? And in doing so, are you pursuing a relationship with him? Are your desires for life having more to do with the kingdom of God or is it with the earthly stuff? Can I exhort you, encourage you, move toward Jesus See, if our lives are moving toward earthly stuff, we're going to be worried about the job, about success, about having the right education, having the right boyfriend, girlfriend, the sports stuff, all of that stuff. But here's what I will guarantee you. I guarantee you this, that you will find God's will when you pursue Jesus. It will become clear. There won't be any doubt. This week, find the will of God for your life, your family's life. Pursue Jesus like never before. Let's stand and pray.